Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's program, with the window for the purchase of new NDP memberships in time for the Leadership Convention closing this week, Alert will assess the campaign and the remaining candidates. We'll get perspectives from Corvin Russell, Murray Dobbin, Josh Brandon, Herbin Rosenfeld, Simon Tremblay-Pépin, and Stefan Christoph. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 16, 2012. The federal government introduced internet surveillance legislation into the House of Commons this week that would require internet service providers to make available to government and police the internet activity of their customers. While that access would require a warrant, the bill would allow police to obtain IP and email addresses and mobile phone numbers without a warrant. Justice Minister Vic Tave said the choice to support the bill is simple. You can either stand with the Tories or with the child pornographers. Toronto City Council voted to dismiss Mayor Rob Ford's subway-centric transit plans and approved a plan to focus on above-ground light rail transit. Ford called the meeting irrelevant and said he will continue to push the province to build subways. Others, including Toronto Transit Commission Chair Councillor Karen Stintz, said the province asked City Council to make a decision and that decision was decisive and will drive the province's actions. A poll conducted in the 48 hours following this council meeting found that 35% of city residents strongly disapprove of the mayor's job performance. The Mennonite Central Committee reports that they have been denied funding from the Canadian International Development Agency for food, water and income generation assistance projects in countries such as India, Haiti and Bolivia. It is believed that MCC's Mining Justice Campaign, which seeks to remedy the harmful effects of the mining industry and which inadvertently criticizes CETA's relationship with the Canadian mining industry, motivated their decision to deny funding. In an interview with the Ottawa Citizen, the Minister of International Cooperation, Bev Oda, says she really doesn't separate Canada's trade and foreign policy interests from its program of aid. A recent study reveals that the number of working poor people in Toronto grew by 42% between 2000 and 2005. The study found that working many hours and holding full-time year-round employment is no longer a guarantee of escaping poverty. The working poor constitute 8.2% of Toronto's workforce. Three out of four are immigrants, half are signal parents, and more than half have some post-secondary education. While many recent reports have found that job creation is on the rise, the working poor in the Toronto region report finds that the jobs available are those paying low wages and offering limited, if any, benefits. Thousands of protesters rallied in Athens for a two-day general strike against deeper austerity measures to prevent Greece from defaulting on their debt. 
railway, ferry, and other public transportation services were stopped, with many other public services severely understaffed as people demanded that their government not pass a vote for more civil service layoffs, wage cuts, and reductions in health and social security spending. The vote passed in Parliament after creditors said the country can't receive a bailout package unless all those cuts are made. In a videotaped statement, the head of al-Qaeda called on Muslims in the Arab world to support Syrian rebels in their efforts to overthrow President Bashar al-Assad, noting they cannot depend on the West for help. This video comes just after U.S. officials said al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri ordered the recent bombings in Aleppo that killed 28 people. The first democratically elected president of the Maldives, Mohamed Nasheed, was ousted in a coup last week. The military and police forces that carried out the coup are loyal to the former president who held power for 30 years before losing to Nasheed in the 2008 election. Police beat Nasheed along with members of the Maldivian Democratic Party during a rally of his supporters. Nasheed gained international recognition from his campaign that highlighted how rising oceans as a result of climate change threaten the physical survival of his country. In preparation for the G8 and NATO summits in Chicago this summer, a ban on recording police is being challenged. The eavesdropping act deems the non-consenting recording of a police officer a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. An amendment to the law, which would allow for the recording of a police officer on duty in a public space, has support from the Chicago police superintendent, who says he endorses the amendment for the protection of the police as well as civilians. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of February 16th, 2012. On February 18th, from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, check out a screening of an award-winning film, Myths for Profit, and participate in a panel discussion that will include the director, Amy Miller, as well as Dennis Lewicki of the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg, and Roger Annis of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Myths for Profit challenges the popular conception that Canada is a global good guy by reviewing our dismal record in international development, national defense policy, and peacekeeping. The event will take place in the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg. There is a suggested donation of $5, but no one will be turned away. February is the shortest month, so the Trans Film Screening Series is filling it with the best in short films by or about trans people of color. Taking place on February 20th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the William Dew Auditorium at 45 Wilcox Street in Toronto, this free event is open to everyone and will offer free snacks. Some of the short films included in the screening are 36A by Alejandro Gabriel Cruz Gonzalez, Ain't I a Woman by Kibo Drew, and Like This by Alexander Lee. For more information, contact transfilmseries at gmail.com. On February 20th, from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m., in room 1400 of the SFU Vancouver campus, 515 West Hastings Street, check out the talk on Walls, Borders, and Occupations, Securitized Regimes, Anatomy of Violence, and Feminist Critique. 
The speaker will be Chandra Mohanty, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Dean's Professor of the Humanities at Syracuse University. Her work focuses on transnational feminist theory, anti-capitalist feminist praxis, anti-racist education, and the politics of knowledge. Economic inequality. What do we do? You are invited to the second in a series of public forums on the subject of economic inequality. Taking place February 22nd from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. in the Eastminster United Church Auditorium at 310 Danforth Avenue in Toronto, speakers will include Roger Martin, the Dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and Armin Yalnizian, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Speakers will be followed by an audience discussion. The event is free, although donations are welcome, and it is wheelchair accessible. For more information, contact info at economicinequality.ca. Be part of this important discussion to plan ways to achieve a more equal society. The NDP Leadership Candidates Debate in Toronto will take place March 1st from 7 to 10 p.m. in rooms 2-212 and 2-213 of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at 252 Bloor Street West. The debate will begin with opening statements by the candidates, followed by Socialist Caucus panel questions, and then audience questions, ending with closing statements from each candidate. Everyone is welcome. Free admission. Doors open at 6 o'clock p.m. The Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly will be hosting a coffee house on sex worker solidarity on March 4th at 2 o'clock p.m. at Beit Zatun at 612 Markham Street in Toronto. This coffee house discussion will address how acting in solidarity with sex worker rights organizations and supporting sex workers in their efforts to improve their working conditions and end criminalization are important in the movement towards expanding labor rights for all Panelists will include Catherine Payne, Keisha Scott, Phoenix Cat, Keisha Williams, and Victoria Love. Moderator will be Emily Van Der Moulen. A unique phenomenon in the U.S. and the world, Left Forum convenes the largest annual conference of a broad spectrum of left and progressive intellectuals, activists, academics, organizations, and the interested public. The conference is held each spring in New York City and will take place this year from March 16th to 18th at Pace University. This year's theme is Occupy the System, Confronting Global Capitalism. For more information, visit www.leftforum.org. That's all for Around the Left for this week. On March 24th, the federal NDP, now Canada's official government-in-waiting, will select the leader who will lead them into the next election. As of this recording, seven candidates are in the running. MPs Nathan Cullen, Nikki Ashton, Thomas Mulcair, Peggy Nash, and Paul Dewar, businessman Martin Singh, and political insider Brian Topp. With so much at stake, how do these candidates measure up in terms of pressing national concerns? Alert contacted a number of political observers recently to get their assessment. We're now speaking with Corvin Russell, a member of the CD Editorial Collective. Uh, welcome to Alert Radio, Corvin. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the NDP leadership race, who do you think would be the best candidate or the best leader for the NDP? And does it really matter? I think it does matter in 
in a fairly superficial short-term sense, uh, I, I do think it will make a difference uh, in terms of who who best is able to to oppose Harper's agenda. Um, in the longer term, though, I don't think any of the leaders is really talking about advancing an ambitious uh, agenda of social change, nor do I think they really have uh, any idea how such an agenda would be brought about. So, you know, I think the answer to the latter question uh, depends on what, you know, what your perspective is, what time frame we're looking at. Uh, in terms of who would be best, I, I don't really have uh, a strong opinion about that. Again, I suppose it depends what you're looking for. Uh, it seems to me that Mulcair, while no doubt the most right-wing of all the candidates, uh, you know, he comes out of the Liberal Party, was a Liberal cabinet minister in Quebec, He's very staunchly Zionist. He's an economic liberal, pro-free trade. He is also the most experienced and suave politician. There's a lot of enemies inside the party, and it seems clear that uh, a lot of the left of the party is really angling to prevent a Mulcair leadership. Um, so, you know, just from the point of view of electoral effectiveness, one might say that Mulcair would be the best choice. From the point of view of making a statement about the character of the party and the party's politics and you know, the left-wing character of those politics, I suppose of the field of candidates who remain, the choice would be down to Peggy Nash or Brian Topp. But, you know, Brian Topp is very much uh, an inside baseball backroom boy. He's never been elected, never run for office, at least in you know the political realm, he is the president of, uh, of ACTRA, the um, Actors Union, and I don't know if he was elected. I assume he was elected to that position, but um, but uh, you know, so I think a Nash leadership would be a statement about where the party's activist base and membership see the party, and you know, Peggy Peggy Nash comes out of the trade union movement and the women's movement, and she's. You know, she hasn't distanced herself from those associations. I think so. I think a choice of Peggy Nash would say clearly, those are the the politics the party uh, still believes in. On the other hand, I don't think a Nash can. You know, I don't think Nash's leader uh, would really be able to act on those politics. So I think it would be a very short term, superficial gesture. And Top so far appears to have very little ability to connect with uh, you know the mythical ordinary person. But not only that, if we believe the poll that Paul Dewar's campaign just leaked, uh, he's top is having very little, uh, you know, is not really able to connect with NDP members either. I don't know. It's uh, it's not a very inspiring field of candidates. What's your What are your thoughts on Nathan Cullen? Well, Cullen is, you know, in one sense, he is he's the one who's rolled the dice hardest, and he's made this bold proposition. A bold in one sense, you know, bold in the sense that it's uh, it's almost certainly um, suicide for uh, for an NDP leadership candidate's ambitions ambitions to suggest uh, an electoral coalition or merger with the Liberals. But you know, for that very reason, uh, it's courageous and it shows he has some some kind of character. I obviously, I think anybody coming from a left wing point of view isn't going to be too inspired by the idea. Uh, on the other hand, as the NDP has drifted more or less into the political center, 
uh, and is very close to the Liberals politically, it's probably a question of when, not if, that's going to happen. And Cohen does have a strong track record on other things like the environment. And, you know, he's taken very strong positions on, on, on some of those issues, particularly the Enbridge pipeline in northern Alberta. He's been opposed to that for a long time and played a very prominent role in climate change talks. So, you know, there are things to be said for Cohen. I, I don't think he represents probably the political orientation that most of Alert's listeners would feel comfortable with, but um, there are certainly things to be said. And he's a, he's a fairly polished politician. So, you know, on the side of electoral competence, he has some things going for him. Well, thank you for speaking with us today and sharing those insights, Corvin. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Corvin Russell, a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. Alert also spoke with journalist and blogger Marie Dobbin. We asked him who he thought would make the best leader among the candidates and if it really mattered. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I, I've been struggling with this, like you know, like a lot of other people, uh, and I keep um, uh, I keep warming to one candidate and then you know and going well maybe not and then looking at another and you know. It, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that the NDP still doesn't get it. It still doesn't really understand that we have uh, the most uh, vicious reactionary in Canadian history in Prime Minister's office with the majority. Uh, I mean, I remember the you know election night with the NDPers being ecstatic with 102 or 103 seats, whatever it was, um, as if they didn't. No one had actually told them that the Conservatives had won a majority. And I think this has been the problem with the NDP for a long time. And, and as much as I like Jack Layton personally, I think he was responsible uh, in, in some ways for uh, even more so than other NDP leaders by, you know, in, in 2008, for example, you know, defeating the Liberals when there was no particular need to, simply based on, I think, you know, the thought that they could get a few more seats if they had the election then, and had it, basically handed the country over to Harper. Uh, so... I think the NDP still hasn't fully come to grips with that, and one of the so that leads me to to think about Nathan Cullen, who's the only candidate who actually sort of understands. I think that you know the the principal task, maybe the only task over the next three and a half years, is to rid the country of Stephen Harper. Um, and so I, I I like him for that reason. I also like him because he doesn't sound like he's constantly adjusting his statements one way or the other to to please some part of the party or some part of the public or the media he sounds natural now the weakness i suppose is that i think that he is he is in some ways fairly conservative on the environment he's very good uh and certainly on this political issue um and the reason uh, i'm sure your listeners realize it probably know this i mean the reason i think that he's he understands the, you know, the, the desperate situation of the country. Is he's su- suggesting a cooperation with the with the Liberals, and you know, before the election actually happens. Um, but I think that he's fairly conservative in a, in a lot of ways. Um, the other candidate who I've written about um, positively is Peggy Nash, who I've known for a long time. And Peggy's strength is that she really understands the role of social movements and the, you know, the need for social movements and. The, and you know, and the existing Progressive Party to to cooperate and to build together 
in some way. And I, I mean, Leighton sort of understood that, but didn't push it as hard as he might have. And of course, the social movements didn't push very hard either. But certainly, I think that's, you know, that's her strength. And I think that she's also been quite good on economic policy. My, my, my worry about her is that she's hyper-partisan. She actually attacked Nathan Cullen in one of the debates on the very issue of, you know, cooperating with the liberals. Uh, saying, well, you know, we've got 103 seats. Why wouldn't we build on what we've done? Um, and uh, so I, I was disturbed by that. Um, uh, so I, so I, you know, I don't, I, I just don't know. Um, there's no, there's no single candidate. If you could sort of pick and choose parts of each of them, uh, you come up with a, you could come up with a pretty good candidate. I don't. Uh, I find Paul Dewar to be. Uh, uh, a lightweight. I, I just don't think he's got what it takes to take on Harper and to uh, and to uh, and to handle policy issues the way they need to be handled. Um, uh, I think Mulcair is a is a disaster. Um, he is uh, he is incredibly pro-Israel and basically has said that he will always support Israel no matter what. Uh, I think that's a huge problem for for a progressive party. Um, and Brian Topp, I mean, it's interesting. Brian Topp, I, I, I don't, I don't trust him particularly because I know him from Saskatchewan. He was Romano's right-hand man, and Romano was basically a Blairite. He actually cut Medicare and education more than the Conservatives did, and he was contemptuous, basically, of social movement organizations and labor. Uh, and Brian Topp was with him throughout that whole period. So, but, but Topp has actually done some interesting stuff in terms of his campaign. He's called very clearly called for tax increases on the wealthy and on corporations. He is very clear uh, that labor has a major role to play in the NDP, which other candidates have sort of shied away from. So you know, I'm, I'm, you know, in the end, uh, I just, you know, it's really hard to choose. You know, I've been writing about about Stephen Harper for 20 years, and I don't want to write about him anymore. But I think that that. Um, uh, for for my money, uh, I I would I would go, I would go with Nathan Cullen, because I think Nathan Cullen understands the situation that, that the country is in, and he's not so hyper partisan that he would allow um, uh, the conservatives to to get another majority. And if they get another majority, you can kiss the country goodbye. There'll be nothing left to save if uh, if Harper's in power for eight years. That was journalist and blogger Murray Dobbin on the NDP leadership campaign. I'm speaking now with Josh Brandon. He is a Winnipeg-based environmental activist. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Could you uh, maybe assess for us uh, your, or provide us with your assessment of the, uh, the NDP leadership race as it pertains to environmental issues? Sure, Michael. Uh, my assessment so far is like a lot of political campaigns we've seen in recent years, unfortunately, the environment hasn't been top of the agenda. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in provincial election campaigns, federal election campaigns, that uh, the environment's slowly been dropping off of what politicians are willing to speak about. And it hasn't come up in a significant way in, in the debates uh, that uh, that the NDP's hosted on this, which is kind of unfortunate because the NDP is a party and as well some of the candidates have some interesting positions on the environment. So that said, with uh, what, uh, you know, considering the overall tone of the of the leadership campaign so far, 
some of the candidates have dealt with environmental issues to varying degrees. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have pretty much st stuck to the, uh, the platform that the NDP had in the last election. There's not been a lot of shift. So, for example, right across the board, all the candidates that I uh, looked at, they all um, are uh, in support of cap and trade. None of them talk about alternative measures such as, uh, you know, a carbon tax, for example. You know, it's pretty much universal agreement on that. Uh, the other, the other big environmental plank that I think most of the candidates are are looking at is some form of uh, tax credit or homeowner support for uh, energy retrofits for houses. So, so those are kind of the main planks that that I've seen that that most of the candidates are, are dealing with at this point. So when they do uh, tackle certain environmental issues like the, uh, the, the tar sands and the uh, Enbridge pipeline, the Keystone pipeline, or our spot in the world when it comes to the fight against global ch climate change, uh, what more would you like to see them expressing? Well, you know, I think one candidate who really does have to stand out on that area is Nathan Collin. He's, uh, he's been a real activist on the issue of the Enbridge pipeline, for example. And that's not surprising. It's cutting through his community and his constituency. So it's, it's very likely that, uh, you know, this is an issue that's of concern to, to most of his constituents. So, and he's been speaking out pretty strongly against the pipeline, uh, both as... Uh, as a leadership candidate and as an MP for the area. And I'd say f for him, he's also got a, a broader range of, of policies on environmental issues, uh, looking at food security and agriculture, water issues, tar sands. Uh, those are all issues that he's, he deals with in a bit more depth than, uh, than some of the other candidates. Um, now, I'd like to see the candidates not only have policies on that, but I'd like to see all the candidates bring it up on a regular basis, you know, in their public forums, in their speeches. You know, I've seen uh, Brian Topp, he's talked about it as well at, uh, you know, he gave a, a speech at the Economic Club recently where he uh, really brought out Canada's failure uh, to develop a good record on climate change. Uh, Canada's failure on the international stage on climate change, and you know that's that's some positive, uh, you know, positive development that he's addressing it at that level. At the same time, I'd like to see all the candidates being more proactive at putting those messages out there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if we can assume that there are uh, grassroots members of the NDP, the people who will be deciding the leader, that uh, there are way that that they might be. Uh, ahead of the candidates when it comes to a uh, more progressive and congenial action on the environment. What kinds of recommendations would you be inclined to dispatch to them, especially as uh, I believe the uh, getting those memberships to be able to qualify to vote? Uh, what, what kind of influence could they possibly have for uh, an outcome that would be acceptable to you and ideally for the, the country? Well, I think uh, one of the one of the basic things that has to happen is we have to get rid of the the cuts uh, the uh, the subsidies to uh, the oil industry you know we can't develop a 
positive record on climate change if we're continuing to subsidize uh, the oil industry to the tune of billions of dollars. So that has to be a plank that's in, in any winning candidate. And I think that would be something that uh, galvanizes a lot of support in the environmental movement across the country. I think we need to deal with fresh water here in Canada. You know, Lake Manitoba is uh, unfortunately one of the sicker lakes in Canada. It's it's a uh, it's the tenth largest lake in uh, in the world in surface areas, and it's got huge problems with pollution and algae blooms. I'd like to see more politicians being committed to putting resources into fixing our our freshwater resources here in Manitoba and across Canada. Okay, well, Josh Brandon, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, thank you very much for providing us with those insights, and uh, thank you for uh, sharing them with Alert. Thanks for having me, Michael. And that was Josh Brandon, environmental activist and lead organizer for this week's panel discussion in Winnipeg on the Enbridge Pipeline. Alert recently spoke with Canadian Dimension Labour columnist Herman Rosenfeld to get his sense of who would be the best candidate to lead the NDP and whether it really mattered. Well, yeah, it's good. To uh, first question, I know, they're both interesting questions. Well, I'm not a big fan of the NDP. I'll start from what doesn't matter first, in the sense that uh, the NDP really is, is partic- in particular, that, as it, anyway, the NDP, as it's been in the last 30, 40 years, in particular the last 10 years, is really doesn't really have much to save to, to socialists, for example, and uh, and for working class people, it doesn't really pose any solutions. Um, and uh, anyway, I'll just start. I'll move back and forth to the questions. Still, in terms of who would make the best leader, I think from the point of view of la- uh, working uh, labor movement and uh, people on the left, uh, for me, I think Peggy Nash would be the best leader. Um, and the reason is I know Peggy, and uh, her politics are centrist like the NDP is, but uh, she's a pretty, uh, she's, I know her, she's a pretty straight shooter, she's pretty honest, she's good on community issues, and, uh, and she listens. And uh, although she's, she's in that centerpiece, that center space, um, and she's not about to push the envelope, I don't think, um, uh, at least, you know, there might be a voice to be, I mean, an ear rather than a voice to be able to actually, things you can get from a parliamentary party that's in the opposition, in terms of finding out about legislation, about letting them know issues you want to, be, you want to have raised, uh, those kinds of things. They're secondary, of secondary importance, but they're positive um, in some way. Um, but if you look at the whole group of them, uh, Mulcair is leading, and, uh, interestingly enough. Mulcair is, you know, he attacks the labor movement, he attacks unions uh, very demagogically, um, uh, it's pretty clear doesn't want to raise taxes. And then you have uh, folks that I don't really like, Cullen, who wants to be able to make deals with liberals. Uh, you know, and uh, you have the fellow at uh, the top, who is the, uh, the backroom fellow who, is, who got all those endorsements, in fact, is in last place. Um, why I don't think it matters that much is because we have a responsibility as socialists to try and build an alternative political uh, space for ourselves. And it's not going to be through or with the NDP. You've even Peggy, you heard what Peggy's uh, economic policy is. It really isn't fundamentally different from some of the issues, the pieces that have been raised in terms in the last ten years, in terms of uh, incentives for uh, for private capital to uh, come here to be able to create this and that job. But really, not a question of changing 
the approach towards an endogenous uh, economy, uh, towards uh, replacing uh, our, our dependence of, uh, on private capital investment uh, in terms of taking over the financial sector. She talks about managing the economy in a fairer way. Uh, one can't manage the economy according to the dictates of private capital accumulation in this era uh, in a way that is that can be fair in any sense. Speaking on the NDP leadership campaign, that was Herman Rosenfeld, Canadian Dimensions labor columnist. And to get uh, his take on the NDP leadership race as it's unfolding currently, we're speaking on the line with Simon Tremblay-Pépin. He is a a Quebec francophone and a researcher with IRIS. So uh, welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks. So uh, could you just uh, tell us uh, briefly uh, who would be, who do you think would make, from your perspective, would make the best leader of the NDP and why? Oh, it's uh, very hard to tell. Um, I, I can tell you at least uh, who wouldn't. Uh, we, we saw the result of the poll uh, this Monday, or, or was it on this Sunday, but about uh, who's winning the race right now, and it seems to be Tom Mulcair. Um, I had predicted more or less this result on your show about uh, two or three months ago, uh, it's, it was obvious that the English-Canadian people would uh, rely, rely on Tom Mulcair because uh, he's from Quebec, he was elected, he's a member of the parliament as opposed to Brian Topp, and uh, he, he could give the impression that he would unite uh, Quebec and the rest of Canada under his leadership. I I still think it's a problematic uh, uh, option. I think that uh, Tom Mulcair will give uh, Quebecer a hard time to um, believe in the NDP leadership uh, for two reasons mostly. Uh, He will have difficulties to rally the votes of people who are sovereignist or at least nationalist, which was more or less 25 or 30 percent of the people who voted for the NDP during the last election. Uh, Mulcair is a clear-cut federalist. And on the other side, he's not really linked to the root of the left wing uh, in Quebec. So he will have problems, too, to uh, rally this base. So who will Thomas Mulcair speak to in Quebec? That's that's the enigma now, and I don't think that people in the rest of Canada understand exactly what they're doing in uh, choosing Mr. Mulcair. Well, that being the case, then, uh, I guess it begs the question, what does it really even matter, then, uh, who the next NDP leader is? Uh, well, it does, yes, because I think some other, um, some other contender could have... Um, had other effect. Let's take some example. For example, uh, for example, a girl like Peggy Nash is clearly a left-wing uh, uh, part of the party. I think people could say, "Well, yes, she's not from Quebec, but we can see her as a left-wing girl, so we can rally to to her." Um, a, a guy like Brian Top, Brian Top with his. Uh, kind of leadership may be another interesting option, but he, he still has problems, too. 
so yes, it has an importance. It's n- no one in this race can replace um, Jack Layden. That's that's for sure. You cannot give something as colorful, uh, intelligence and witty as Jack was, but. For the moment, yes, it, it's important to know who will be the next leader, but I'm not sure that we have so many uh, good options uh, right now in the contenders. Okay. Well, uh, Simon Tremblay-Pepin, we really uh, appreciate those perspectives. Uh, thank you for sharing them with us. Well, thank you. And I've been speaking with Simon Tremblay-Pepin. Uh, he is a researcher with IRIS and based, a francophone based in Quebec. Joining us now from Montreal is a community activist, Stéphane Christophe. Stéphane Christophe, uh, could you maybe give us uh, your perspectives on uh, the NDP leadership race as we've seen it so far? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, obviously, this is a very critical uh, race. Um, the uh, future of you know, one of Canada's largest political parties is at stake. Particularly, I've been interested to see the way that the NDP has been dealing with um, the issue of Palestine and the ongoing Palestinian struggle for freedom. Um, that's an issue that is very much present uh, amongst the grassroots left across Canada. Um, but it's an issue that, unfortunately, I haven't seen being addressed in a serious way by any of the major uh, contenders for the NDP uh, leadership. And I think it speaks to uh, a broader issue vis-a-vis NDP policy in recent years, which is to um, kind of shy away from taking on difficult issues in a public setting in front of the cameras. Difficult issues, on, in this case, we're discussing Palestine. But I think that that uh, reality can uh, be much Broad, more broadly interpreted. So we want to talk about uh, issues around uh, scrapping uh, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, um, openly calling for the end to uh, trade agreements that um, you know undermine uh, workers' rights and environmental standards in Canada. Um, so I think that that's another issue that I was I was hoping, and I think. Uh, the NDP should be addressing uh, more pointedly. And that ties back to our initial point, because actually right now the Canadian government is involved in uh, negotiations to revamp the Canada-Israel bilateral trade agreement um, that was initially signed in 1997, but is right now being renegotiated by the uh, Canadian and Israeli governments. Uh, that's another issue we've seen nothing about, but I think it really ties together uh, issues around neoliberalism, but also issues around Israeli apartheid. Could could you maybe give us an indication if any of these leaders impress you uh, either in a positive way or a negative way when it comes to uh, Canada is the Canada Israel relationship? Oh well, particularly I think we should address the issue of Thomas Mulcair um, from here in Montreal. Um, the uh, NDP MP, um, his statements on on Palestine and Israel have been extreme. Uh, he was quoted recently in recent years saying that I will stand by Israel in 
uh, any and all circumstances, essentially. The direct quote was uh, published by the Canadian Jewish News, um, and uh, it essentially was conveying uh, the fact that Mulcair wanted to support uh, the Israeli government in all circumstances. Um, so it's really important, I think, to note that quote, because it speaks to larger efforts on the behalf of Mulcair to introduce pro-Israeli apartheid policies within the new Democratic Party, within the NDP. It's a very serious issue. Uh, for example, when Libby Davies spoke um, at a pro-Palestine rally uh, in Vancouver and uh, said that the Israeli military occupation began in 1948, which is historically accurate. There's different phases to the Israeli occupation, um, but definitely in, in 1948 there was a mass military displacement of indigenous Palestinians, and um, also there was a military occupation of Palestinian lands that took place. Libby Davies uh, pointed to this directly, and um, Thomas Mulcair of the NDP uh, essentially tried to uh, whip up support to punish her for these statements, which, uh, you know, are not really a matter of opinion, but are more of a historical note. And uh, the fact that so many of the uh, members of the NDP caucus just remained silent on the issue was shameful. Um, so that's uh, one example of an NDP politician um, in that story, one who has spoken quite strongly for Palestine, which is Libby Davies, who's not leading or running for the NDP leadership, but then also Thomas Mulcair, who is, but has been extremely pro-Israel. Okay. Uh, Stefan, I think we're probably going to have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those insights with us on Alert. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a nice day. You as well. And that was Stefan Christophe, a writer and community activist based in Quebec. I am a dragon. When I'm cleaning up my lair, I like to collect the piles of change and donate them to ravel.ca slash donate. I just total up the loonies, toonies, and doubloons I've got lying about the cave, then head for ravel.ca slash donate. It's dragons like you and I that keep ravel.ca running. A place for everything, and everything in its place, I always say. My donations belong at ravel.ca slash donate. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And here to start this week's show are the Weavers with C. McKellis Escarabir. Allí tiene, oh, 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 oh,
candesa, allí tienen una fonda. En la entrada de la fonda hay un mala mojame. En la entrada de la fonda hay un mala mojame. Que te dice paisa, paisa, que quieres para Paisa, paisa, que quieres para This week's show is about the Weavers. You know, back in 1952, they had back-to-back A-side, B-side, number one hits. The first one was with Lead Bellies, Irene Goodnight, and the second one was with an Israeli song, Sena, Sena, Sena. But by 1953, they were blacklisted. They couldn't get a job anywhere. Pete Seeger, who was a member of the group, was running around doing guerrilla house concerts wherever he could and so were the rest of them. It was a really terrible time in the American psyche with McCarthyism. And, of course, McCarthyism crossed the border into Canada. A lot of people lost their jobs here, too. The most amazing thing about the Weavers for me is that they single-handedly inspired me both musically and, and politically. And they were very, very important in my development and the development of a lot of people I knew. So today's show is about them and about their music. And we're going to start with two more political songs. Here is The Weavers with Which Side Are You On? 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 with the union till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a 
man. Tell me which side are you on? 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 Don't scab for the bosses. Don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Tell me which side are you on? 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 Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? I've traveled around this country from shore to shining shore. It really made me wonder the things I heard and saw. I saw the weary farmer plowing his sod and loam. I heard the auction hammer just a knocking down his home. But the banks are made of marble. With a guard at every door, and the vaults are stuffed with silver that the farmer sweated for. I saw the weary miner scrubbing coal dust from his back, and I heard his children crying, "We've got no coal to heat the shack." But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the vaults are stuffed with silver That the miners waited for I saw the seamen standing Idly by the shore And I heard the owners saying Got no work for you no more. But the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door, and the vaults are stuffed with silver that the seamen sweated for. the weavers singing Les Rice's The Banks Are Made of Marble, and before that, Pete Seeger leading the weavers in Which Side Are You On? That little bit of success they had with Irene Goodnight and Senna, Senna, Senna 
really helped inspire an awful lot of people to go out and learn about folk music. One of the things about the Weavers is you can't just think about them as political singers. You have to think about the Weavers as part of the initiators of a whole North American folk revival, urban folk revival. Very, very, very important artists, and they were able to reach not just to political music, but to all kinds of music. Here they are with Jesse Fuller's San Francisco Bay Blues. If I haven't 
That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpy. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.